Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Yi Yoon Lee is here in the studio. Welcome, Yoon. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> oh, it's it's well, it's great to see you, and it's great to to have this opportunity to talk. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, it's eight, the 18th of March, 2010, um, as we as we sit here, and that music, of that Mahler was so uh, mesmerizing that <laughs> I, I can sit here and for, listen. <laughs> I think we were both in a sort of a, a trance yes. there. Um, yes. Yeah, we can sit here and listen for a whole hour. So, so listeners, if the breaks keep getting longer oh, and longer, you you'll know what happened. Oh. Or we can be the break for the music. Exactly. Well, um, you, you, before we go any further, I'll read. Um, you're here in town, and you're you're doing a, a reading um, at the art museum, and and doing many things with the MFA program, um, yes. talking with students and mm-hmm. whatnot. Um, and but you you also uh, your your novel, The Vagrants, is just out in paperback. It was out last year, hardcover, and now with Random House this year in paper. Yes, for the book clubs. Right? Oh, is yes. That- <laughs> And everyone else. Everyone else, yes. <laughs> I'm part of that. I, I got it. Um, and so, uh, so before going further, I'll just start with the, the biography in the back of the book. Yi Yun Lee is the winner of the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award, the Guardian First Book Award, and the Hemingway Foundation Pen Award. She grew up in Beijing and attended Peking University. She came to the United States in 1996 to study medicine and started writing two years later. After receiving a master's degree in immunology from the University of Iowa, she attended the Iowa Writers' Workshop, where she received an MFA. The author of A Thousand Years of Good Prayers, Lee was selected for a Whiting Writers' Award, and Granta named her one of today's best writers under 35. Yoon Lee teaches at the University of California, Davis, and lives in Oakland, California, with her husband and their two sons. And I love in the the acknowledgments at the back with your husband. I think you say thank you for the making the maps and the yes. curtains and the love <laughs> and <laughs> love. Yes, <laughs> all very important. The map is actually for the novel. Yes, can you say a little bit about that? Right. You know, I was working on this novel. I knew that I was going to use his hometown as a model for this muddy river for this fictional town in my book. And and why was that? Because, you know, one thing, his hometown used to be called Muddy River. And in 1994, the city government thought Muddy River was too ugly. So so they changed the name to White Mountain <laughs> for tourist reason. And the town became a tourist town. <laughs> right after that. Uh, right after that. <laughs> it's so, all about the branding, isn't there it? There you go. So I love Muddy River. I thought, well, you know, since nobody is using that name, I'm going to claim Muddy River as my town. So I... I decided to set this novel in Muddy River, and he made a map of the city or the town where he grew up for me. And then, and did he also um, explain like how it was? Because the novel itself, The Vagrants, it's set in the 1970s. Mm, yes. And so, was he able to give you that? I guess that setting really. I, you know, I had some of the settings from him, but 1970, we, we are, we're the same age. So in 1979, we, we were both six, seven. So going on seven. So I took a lot from my memories. And, but I also borrowed some of his memories, mostly just about the town, because I grew up in Beijing, which was a big city. Well, he's this provincial town. He really knew it so well that I sort of just, 
I did not tell him that I was going to use it, so I was just trying to make him talk. <laughs> and he just told many stories in about the town. That's sort of wonderful because in the storytelling, you also then you knew these other parts of him, which sometimes after a certain point, with with people who were very close to, we almost forget to ask That's about. That's right. Even That's though right. I know, and the thing is, he hasn't read the novel yet. I、and、what's he waiting for? <laughs> no, I have not allowed him to read. <laughs> I, you know, it's so funny. I, I I say, oh, he hasn't read, and everybody laughs. It's. I think, especially because it was set in Muddy River, it had a lot of, you know, I borrowed a lot of things from his life. We sort of had this agreement that he would wait until my next book comes out, and then he would read this one. Well, the 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 novel itself, it's it's dealing with traumatic events,、yeah. and there's an execution, and so in some ways, I guess that's that sometimes that's the writers. Like a writer's problem, because、mm-hmm. when you're you're the stories are all around us, but sometimes they feel like they're other people's stories, even though when we're writing them, then they become become ours in a new way. Right. But is that part of the problem? Do you think you? No, it's not. I mean,、work? it's a little bit more. It's you know when I wrote these stories were, you know, these stories were known to him and to me. But when you write something, it's your approach or how you present it. Which is different from who I am in my daily life, and I just <laughs> want to protect my family <laughs> from that writer. In, you know, in a weird way, I don't want him to feel that I have looked at this world so closely and I have studied this, you know, human nature in such a I don't know dark way. So and, and somewhat unflinching. Yes, yes. So, but. You mean eventually he has to read because that's important too. Yes.、Yeah. Um, also, in in the you mentioned William Trevor,、mm-hmm. and、um, and when I was reading reading about you、um, to, to prepare for this, Yun,、um, you had said、uh, that that his his stories that、uh, they, they they give you hope、mm-hmm. for his stories and and in the book, and so I wondered. Um, is that is he someone that you've also worked with, or is it just like the work itself that's in the world that you've read by him? Right. No, I have not worked with him. You know, he's. I admire him. I mean, he's he's really my most favorite living author, and I read him. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say every day now, but I used to read him every day. Ooh, okay. And he so instead a, of like the Bible or something <laughs> like that, <laughs> touch well, base with William Trevor. He has a huge body work, which is a fortunate thing for me because you know if you love a writer who only wrote one book, <laughs> yeah. He has this、um, collection of stories and you know collections and collections and novels. So I really. In a way, I think I feel very close to his way of looking at the world and presenting the world. And I became friend with him after my first book came out. So I did. I mean, I do talk to him, where I correspond with him. But I wouldn't say I work with him. I would show my writing to him. Yes. Well, that, well, that's something.、Um, Even more, like something that's just happened、um, right. organically. So it's right, it's, and and almost by by accident. Yes, and I also consider I talk to him in my work. You know, I I mean, it's very hard for me to find anything to say to him in life, but all I have to say are you know, as in my work, 
and I think he understands that too. So, and he'll yes, he'll understand, and to know when you're writing it that someone will understand. Right, that right. seems critical. Right, so that's a very important part of my you know creativity is to to talk to him mm-hmm. in my work. Oh, that's that. Well, that's lovely. Yeah, thank that's, you. Um, and and so you you and from you you mentioned that your your husband was from you know outside the city, more of a, a mm-hmm. provincial city, mm-hmm. or. Um, uh, but you were in Beijing, mm-hmm. and and I wondered what was it like for you because in in the 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 stories which which some people are calling link, linked stories mm. that but it's it's a novel it's I didn't a, feel that way I was wondering maybe they would not have said that in if you, your first book hadn't been a collection <laughs> of stories yeah. I wonder I I really disagree I don't think it's a linked. You know, no. I, I mean, it's not many stories linked together. It's it's about a community. It's about a town. And there's more than one person in exactly. a town with one, more than one perspective. <laughs> exactly. And, and life equaling plot line, right? Exactly. Yes. So I, I think it's a, I mean, to me, it's just a very organic novel. Yeah. Yes. And seeing how the people are. Um, mm-hmm. Inter- uh, interact. Yeah. I mean, paths, you know, paths are crossed in many different ways. And Even you, without knowing. Exactly. And you sort of, you know, affect your neighbor's fate in a way that sometimes you don't mean it or sometimes you do mean it. And that's that's part of the reason I write about this community in, from so many different angles. Because you cannot approach, I mean, truth is in the center, but you, you can never get that truth. But you can get as close as possible. With your observations mm-hmm. of yes. the behavior and then imagining what the mind... yes. Yeah, I would say was that. inhabiting. Yes. Um, so, with your experience in Beijing, did you also see um, any of the denunciations, mm-hmm. the, the 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 posters mm-hmm. that were around town with yes. the, the red check marks yes. that would mean someone was scheduled for an execution? Right. I, you know. <laughs> I would say in 1979, Beijing was very much like Muddy River. It's a huge city, but it was a huge provincial city. I always call it a, it's a metrop- metropolis of villages because it was just made of little villages. And, and so, can you ever really know a place like that? Yeah, you know, sort. I mean, you know wh- where you are in a way. So, like, for me, where we lived and people around us... There was no secret, you know. You know everybody's story. Everybody's talked about. So, so that's very much like Muddy River, and yes, you know when we were. I remember when we were in uh, kindergarten, not kindergarten, daycare. We would be taken out for field trips to see people executed. Not the real execution, but the part like the denunciation right before the execution, and it was a rather festive outing because when you were five six you did not know what was going on in the world but just that you got to go outside for a while exactly your everyday life was interrupted for something better and so that you know i put a lot of those memories into the novel yes and and that's especially um those are the moments where you're really realizing some of the darkness because you're seeing how if that's what you're taught Mm-hmm. as well or if that's what then it takes a while until you question that it would seem exactly and it takes much longer for one to start questioning these things especially when you grew up in this you know i grew up in this uh like age like martyrdom 
was really praised, or hero heroism was really praised. And then you grew up; you were used to people giving up their lives for things that were even, you know, remotely interesting or important. Right. Like what's like even on the verging on the trivial then. Right. Like, like in like people would sacrifice their lives saving a statue of Chairman Mao. <laughs> saving it for what? <laughs> From a flood or something. Or from a fire. Well, I know you have one character that falls off、um, Chairman Mao's statue's shoulder while cleaning it. Yes, that's that's part of you know the sacrifice you were requested or you required for from the time. So I was very interested in all these things. Yeah, thoughts about martyrdom and sacrifice. And did you feel like you you?、Um, were you surprised by anything as you were observing these characters as they grew? Yes, I think. Oh, I, is there anything? No, I sort of understood them better. You know, for instance, why would the woman give up her life? You know, a young mother gave up her life for something higher, for a calling. I mean, it's the same because she she just happened to work for democracy. But it would be the same if she worked for communism, then she would still give up her life. So those things, I you know, are the things I I looked into. Well, we'll come back, and when we come back, you and、we'll, you read a little bit from、okay. from the vagrants for us, so we can hear. That would be great. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Yi Yun Li,、um, her latest, The Vagrants.、Um, we've got Alex Alex Belhaj in the engineering chair, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got living writers, and today Yi Yun Li is here in the studio.、Um, I'm T. Hetzel, and、uh, it's a sunny day and a beautiful day, also for Mahler. And you've been you've been listening to this for the last year, did you say? Yes, yes, for the last 
probably year and a half now. <laughs> and 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 why? Like, what brought you to this well, music? And it's so funny because William Trevor asked me when I met Trevor. He said, oh, "Have you listened to Marla?" I said, "Not much." And he said, "You should listen to Marla." And I make it my sort of a project too. <laughs> Wow. So are you going? Um, so what is this project? Are you going through the symphonies? Or? Yes, I like I would listen to symphony number one for like a whole lot of time. And I would try to write something that in my mind would match the music. And yeah, it's it's really it's it's very inspiring, I would say. And so, is this what you're currently working on? Is part of this? No, is it, or no. no. It was. Yeah, I'm still listening, but it's. You know, I always work. Like I, when I write, I always have some music. I mean, either Mala or someone else. But you know, you try to catch that mood in your writing, but that only is for yourself in a way. It's not for general audience, or people would not know. But it makes it important, and when you come back to listen to the music, it matters in a very personal way. Yes. And and is it something where when you're um like when you're starting to write, um, mm-hmm. is do you put the music on and you're you're doing things for a while, or is it something that is almost a ritual? Or it's some, you know, it's very interesting. It depends on what kind of stories I'm writing. I was working on one story, and I really wanted this one Japanese folk song that when I learned when I was a child, and I mean I wasn't I didn't have a copy of the song. It's called Red Dragonfly, and so I. Googled. I mean, I found a, I found a, you know, on the internet, and when I was thinking about the story, I would listen to the song again and again, just on the computer, and just to get that voice because it was a young girl singing, and to get the, the lyrics was just beautiful, and so, those are the things I would do, like a sort of preparing myself to write. That's yes, that sounds, perfect actually. <laughs> That's. Um... And and so music has always been important to you. And it's interesting because is it music that, um, well, with that folk song example, mm-hmm. um, uh, it was actually, were, were you able to understand any of the Japanese or was it also like the Mahler where we were talking about the German? Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the voice is actually another instrument without meaning. I, I mean, except for the emotional right, meaning that's right. being communicated. I mean, the, with the Japanese folk song, I knew the Chinese translation. Because you had learned that yes. in your, so, as a child in right. school. So I knew what was this singing was singing about. You know, so how did, how did that? Oh, sorry, go ahead. What uh, was she the song about? was about in the lost childhood. You know, in a, in a long <laughs> time ago, we were playing by the river. You know, like we're playing the sun and the red dragonfly. And so it was very nostalgic song. But I just sort of wanted that mood, even though in the end my story had nothing to do with the song. Right. It's not as if there was a red dragonfly right. in the title. There was not a red dragonfly. There was. I think I just imagined there's one character, a young girl, but she was such a minor character. Nobody would even even pick her up. But I just remembered that was her voice singing, and that was critical for getting the whole story. Right, yes, though, yes, to have that. But one voice that that's you right. was there. That's right. But again, it's just the beginning of the story, you know. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Oh, well, that's lovely. That's um. <coughs> uh, that's have some, We're having some um, coffee um, mm-hmm. provided to the station by John Ruse of Ruse Roast. Um, so 
You get to. <laughs> it's like live. We're radio theater live today. You there you go. <laughs> radio theater. <laughs> um, well, um, I also I was I was reading that when you received the galley of um, the vagrants, mm-hmm. you were and correct me if any of this story is just <laughs> urban legend oh, now. <laughs> but, but you were in Kilkenny, Ireland, oh, yes. and you received the galley. And as you were reading through it, you were actually uh, overcome by some emotion where you you be, you were crying um, with the characters. Um, Gosh, where did that story come from? It was a true story. I forgot I already mentioned to the press. Yes, it was the last time proofreading. And I knew it was going to be the last time I was going to read from the beginning to the end. And I was in a hotel, you know, early in the morning, jet lagged. I read the whole thing. And then I realized that's the time you're going to let these characters go to the world. You're going to let these characters go into their own fate without having any say and it's really just like saying goodbye to people you lived with for a long time so I was actually really overcome by emotion and I just I took a long walk to, to some really just run down cere- like cemetery <laughs> just to yeah so I spent a long time in the cemetery a perfect um, Ireland moment exactly actually. you know there actually it's very easy to find a cemetery in Ireland so you don't have to take a really long walk <laughs> that's exactly so I spent a did. long time I spent a long time in the cemetery Yes. And that, and that was after. And so and then the book went into the world. Yes. And then you have to separate yourself from the book in a way. You, you, you have to. I don't know. They're not, you know, these characters. They are in public now. And and you can't protect them anymore. But also, I think there's that realization that because of being true to the story themselves, you couldn't even protect them within the novel. I know, yeah. I think that's one thing that maybe I was very emotional was when you when you work on the novel, you're just trying to make things, you know, I don't know, I, I wasn't really look, I wasn't really looking at the big picture. I wasn't looking at, you know, each character, how they, how each character died or, you know, was prisoned or was executed. I wasn't really think about that. But when you, finish the whole thing you were not working on the sentence level you were not working on the paragraphs that was when you look at these people and you started to feel for them <laughs> yeah so yeah so they were i mean in a way you have to let them go to the world and their own fate and this um and and this was actually like the the genesis there was a, a, re, a real like the, it was based on something that happened in real life, like the beginning. Would it be the the actual execution, or um, and then of course everything else was what right. you imagined around it, right? So the book, yeah, the novel is or was ba- loosely based on these two executions that took place in central China in late 1970s. So a woman was executed as a counter revolutionary, and her kidneys were taken out uh, for transplant before the execution, and. Her body was raped and mutilated. It was just like a very horrendous tale. And the second woman was the leader of a protest on this woman, the first woman's behalf, and she was executed too. So those were the facts I learned from real life. And then, the, and was that something that you had already knew, and it was a, one of the stories that stayed with you um, from? Uh, Growing up no, there. actually, I learned it when I after I came to America because this history was pretty much not available in China. So I read in America in, on the internet. You know, these were the websites you would not be able to get inside China. So 
I, that that case stayed with me. In a in a way, I think as a novelist, right away you realize that's the arc of a novel. You have you know one execution at the beginning, and then other you know at the end you have that bookend of executions. And my interest is in how the community you know again it's not individual but the whole community how they reacted to the death of the woman you know, and then how they go how they went from one point to the you know point A to point B and. How the community just did, I mean, dissociate in the end, they just broke apart. Yeah. And and also thinking about what is the motivation for someone then to speak up for someone else. Right, right. You know, in a way, I really believe that, you know, audience is part of the play. You know, there's no absolute independent audience just to watch these things. And in a, in a way, by bystanders also participate in this social drama. So that's very important for me because in the end, I think a lot of innocent people contributed to other people's, you know, misery. And then, you know, people who, I don't know, like... But are they innocent? Yeah, and exactly. If you let things happen without protesting, you know, you already you're taking your stand in a way. Right. Yes. Yeah. As somebody at the station was mentioning... Um, uh, yesterday, how um, textbooks in um, in a Texas school are being changed to rewrite history to not include some of the Americas, like the uh, the period of slavery. Oh, so I mean, you think can this be can oh. this be true? <laughs> can, I mean, how can? Well, uh, that's right. very alarming. Isn't it, it is, and maybe, and and I have to look into it. So I, 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 I saw I that. Speak out you know, I saw oh, that news okay. too. I okay. saw it, and in a way, you know, like it's very alarming if, if it happens in America because when we grew up, we knew, we sort of knew the history we were told was not a real history, or I knew because. How do you know that? Well, my parents apparently, you know, they would sort of instill this belief that don't believe in everything that you read. So my, my father, who is a scientist, especially he make, he made sure that we understood, we understand that, you know, nothing we read, you know, is really, really true. So you have to question everything. So that's why he also didn't like me to read fiction or, you know, even literature. He said it, it could be maneuvered to be propaganda. <laughs> Oh, I see. Especially yeah. if there is an emotional content of yes. feeling and empathy for the characters. That's right. right. Yes. Oh, I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. But mm. you, you don't want American history to be rewritten. <laughs> you don't want... Well, I think we have to actually add some pieces to it, don't oh, we, already? Oh, oh, There's right. more work to be done on That's the right. on the truth-telling of the stories oh, of this country. I know. <laughs> Not to get all... <laughs> <laughs> Radical. No. Oh my goodness, I know. <laughs> uh, well, Yiyun, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we will really hear part of okay, <laughs> from the right. novel, The Vagrants, because I'm getting carried away talking with you. But um, so, so today on Living Writers, Yiyun Lee is here. Her latest novel, um, well, the debut novel, because A Thousand Years of Good Prayers was a story collection. And you can check that out too. But we're going to hear something from The Vagrants today. Out with Random House, um, Alex Bell Hodge engineering for us. We'll be right back.
Hello, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Yi Yun Lee is here. Um, thanks so much for being here. It's it's great. It's such a pleasure. <laughs> to have you here. Um, well, without further ado, I think we're going to go right to the novel. And, okay. and Yes. So I'll read two very short excerpts, one from the very beginning of the novel, so you can get a sense of what's going on you know, at the opening chapter. The day started before sunrise on March 21st, 1979, when Teacher Gu woke up and found his wife sobbing quietly into her blanket. A day of equality it was, also it had occurred to Teacher Gu many times when he had pondered the date, the spring equinox. And again the thought came to him. Their daughter's life would end on this day, when neither the sun nor its shadow reigned. A day later the sun would come closer to her and to the others on this side of the world, imperceptible perhaps to dull human eyes at first. But birds and worms and trees and rivers would sense the change in the air, and they would make it their responsibility to manifest the changing of seasons. How many miles of river melting and how many trees of blossoms blooming would, t- would it take for the season to be called spring? But such naming must mean little to the rivers and flowers when they repeat their rhythms with faithfulness and, and indifference. The date set for his daughter to die was as arbitrary as her crime, determined by the court, of being an unrepentant counter-revolutionary. Only the unwise would look for significance in a random date. Teacher Gu willed his body to stay still and hoped his wife would soon realize that he was awake. So this was at the beginning of the novel. And Teacher Gu and Mrs. Gu were going to lose their daughter. And after the execution, Teacher Gu got sick, and he was hospitalized for a few days. And in the hospital, he started to talk to his first wife in his in his mind, because the the, the daughter was with his second wife. The first wife, he they married before communism took over China. So she was an underground party member, and he was working for the government. So. After communism took over China, they got a divorce, and so this this is a when he when teacher Gu returned from the hospital, he started to write to his first wife. So I'm going to read the first letter. Greatly respected comrade Chan, he started the letter, and then thought the opening ridiculous with its revolutionary ugliness. Even though he had addressed her with this formality in his letters once or twice a year for the past thirty years. He ripped the page off the notebook and started again. My once, close fr- my once closest friend, colleague, and beloved wife, he wrote with great effort. My once closest friend, colleague, and beloved wife, he read it aloud and decided that it suited his mood. Remember the umbrella that my father lent my mother at a street corner in Paris that started their lifelong love story? It was in autumn 1916, if you still remember. You said what a romance when I first told you the story. I'm writing to let you know that the emblem of this great love no longer exists. The umbrella did not survive my daughter's death because her mother, my current wife, thought that the daughter needed an umbrella in heaven. So the mother burned an umbrella. Well, there a heaven above. 
I wonder if my parents are fighting with my daughter for possession of the umbrella. The grandparents had not met the granddaughter in life. In death, I hope they do not have to spend a long time in the company of the girl. My parents, as you may remember, possessed the elegance and wisdom of the intellectuals of their generation. My daughter, however, was more a product of this revolutionary age. She died of a poison she had herself helped to concoct. Despite art and philosophy and your mathematics and my faith in enlightenment, in the end, what marks our time? Perhaps we could take the liberty to believe, for all we know, that this time may last for the next hundred years. What marks our time is the moaning of our bones crushed beneath the weight of empty words. There's no beauty in this crushing, and there is, alas, no escape for for us. Now or ever. Teacher Gu stopped writing and read the letter. His handwriting was a shaky old man's, but there was no point in being ashamed at the loss of his capacity as a calligrapher. He folded the letter in the special way that young lovers had folded love notes forty years earlier. Only then did he realize he had forgotten to ask the question. He opened he opened his notebook. Highly respected Kamui Chan. Please tell me, in all honesty, if you are assigned to marry me by your party leaders for your communist course. I'm getting closer to death each day now, and I prefer not to leave this world a deceived man. That's it. Thank you, Yiyun. <gasps> Thank you. In a way, that's also a tribute to a lost art of letter writing. Oh yes, I'm so happy you mentioned that because I love letter writing. And I'm very sad. I mean, email is fine, but email is different than letter writing. And I've been reading a lot of letters by, you know, like Flannery O'Connor and Penelope, Penelope Fitzgerald. You know, that generation of writers—they all write. I mean, I'm reading Graham Greene's letters. So I, you know, there's something about letters that I really love. So. Of course, my characters write letters too, and it's because when the writer of the letter, it's really this moment that you're speaking in your way, your own way directly right. to the person that you're imagining is going to be reading it. Right. But it's one of those times where there's because even if you really because in a conversation we're constantly also interrupting each other or, mm-hmm. or moving on or moving from what what's being said but in a letter it's it's this one whole moment that yes. what you want to say to one person that's right and also that one person may not hear you that's the another part because in the book the receiver of the letters the, the ex-wife was already too sick to read he did not know he kept sending letters to her while she was dying so that you know i think letters rather you know different than emails the emails are instant you know letters really provide that space and in both physical space and in the space in time you know you have to send the letters and they might not be received not only exactly. be for some also the accident of yes. destiny being yes. lost that's right <laughs> so i that's why i really i'm so attached to letter writing <laughs> so do you and do you is that part of something that you do, I do. every week like you make sure to do like write I, I do write letters to friends, handwriting. Handwrite, I, I handwrite letters yes. to friends. Yes. And that's so important too, isn't it? Yes, but it's part of you know my thinking. I'm thinking a lot in my letters. <laughs> yes. Well, um, 
Well, I love that too. I'm definitely a proponent. <laughs> Thank you. We can start a letter writing. You know, <laughs> new trend of letter writing. Will you be my pen pal? <laughs> um, well, you in the uh, earlier you mentioned that your dad didn't want you to read fiction mm-hmm. or, or literature, and and I was wondering what was the moment because it seems like. Did you come to the states mm. to pursue um, a degree in science in yes. immunology, yes. which which you got? Um, Halfway, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to get a PhD, but I I compromised with the master. <laughs> well, it's all a step, right? Yes. <laughs> a step. Mm. Um, and it got you to Iowa. Yes, that's right. I just happened to be in Iowa to pursue my science degree, <laughs> but then I heard everybody in Iowa City was writing a novel, <laughs> and then I started too. <laughs> Why not? Uh, right? Yeah. But, but how did you, is that the moment when you actually thought um, writing is something mm-hmm. I want? Or was it something that happened earlier when you were much younger or still in China? Or what? No, could you- I, I had always been a big reader. So I read a lot when I was a child. I'd never thought about writing. And I, I yeah, the moment really happened after I, I was in Iowa City. I started I took a I took a writing class and wrote a story in English, and which was a very huge discovery for me because I'd never written anything in Chinese, and I realized once I took up English, it became very natural for me to write in English. Why? Why I you know I think when you grow up with the language, you have so many associations with the language and you know taboos and also just you censor yourself. I. When I was in China, I kept this journal. I always say, oh, my mother was a very nosy person. She would want to know what I wrote in my journal. So my way of writing is I write about things I'm not going to talk about. <laughs> so in a way, like if there's a bird here, I would not say, look, there's a bird. I would say, here's the cloud, here's the sky, here's the tree. And then I leave the bird as an empty, you know, blank space. So when I read back, when I... Went back to reread the journal. Only I would know there's a bird. Well, my mother would see sky and you know and cloud. So in a way, I think that was an indirect way of writing, and which was not an effective way in storytelling. And in English, I don't have that problem. <laughs> so it's so much natural for me to write because in English. your your mom is not going to read your journal Except, now. <laughs> she doesn't English. read English either. <laughs> that's, that's the it's, key. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it's very helpful. Your mother doesn't read the language you write. <laughs> well, have your books been translated though? I'm sure. I'm sure they have. No, they not haven't. Yet. I mean, okay. I mean, trans- you mean in Chinese or yes, no, are. not in all the other languages, but Chinese. <laughs> and 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 is that um, something related to uh, not wanting this story to be told this way, or what? I mean, pa- I mean, it's partially my decision, but also partially the situation of what I write about. I, mean, I did make the decision now to have the story collection translated into Chinese because I, I say I would have to rewrite the whole thing in Chinese rather than direct translation. And but the novel is different. I think the novel is very much translatable, but it's so it's about it's it's a little bit political in the way the content so i don't think it would be translated so so with the the short story collection you and am i understanding that you're you're working on the translation of that no, the, as well. No, yeah. the translation. No. Oh, no, 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 no. So, so somebody else is no, doing it, and you'll. No, I I rejected the offer. Oh, okay. There was an offer to translate. I said no because, I mean, story is really 
rely totally on the space and and what you don't say and what you say in a short story. And if you translate, still that place for the bird or no bird. Exactly. So if you translate the story back into Chinese, it's the, the readers are different, the audience is different. So I have to rewrite rather than translate. And that's not something you want to do right now because there's more stories that like in mm. moving yes. onward. Right. I once the story is written, it's sort of gone. So I don't want to go back to relive these stories. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. Although some of uh, uh, two of them were made into films. Yes. Were they? And so they do have this other type of life. There <laughs> That's as well. true. That's and, true. And you wrote the screenplay for those. Or I wrote one of the screenplays for a thousand years of good prayers. And yes, it's, it's, it's a very interesting experience because as a writer, you live in your own world. You know, I stay in my house. I write. I don't talk to people. Once you are on a film set, you're talking to all sorts of people, and they really make what you imagined, you know, come alive on the screen, which is very satisfying. Was it so? It felt like they they got it right. I think so. I think so. I learned a lot. You know, I mean, and movies and books are never the same, but still, I I feel that I learned a lot from that process. What? Like, how did you? I like. I'm not a very visionary. Uh, no, I'm not a very visual storyteller. So, I could be very much deep in the character's mind. When when the when director the director is Wayne Wang who did you know Twilight Club and Smoke. When he first approached me, he said, "I want to make a film out of these the story," and I said, "You know, you cannot make this film." I said, "This is a very internal story. Nothing happens in the story." <laughs> and he said. Exactly. That's why. And for me, I was highly suspicious. I thought, you know, nothing happened in the story. How could you make a story? I mean, movie out of that story. So he did push me to imagine. You know, if nothing happened outside, if a character is thinking about something, what would the character look like? What would the character do? You know, those things. I, as a storyteller, sometimes I don't. Actively think, and so that's something that you added in to the screenplay. Then, as you were going through the rewrite of it for right. this new form, right? And also just the silence. How so funny! The first draft I showed him, he's all, "Even this is not a film. This is not a script. This is a radio play." <laughs> he said, "I'll like, oh, bring it here next time." Like there you go. My characters talked all the time, mm. because that's one thing that you forgot. Actually, he said, "If your characters talk all the time, there's nothing for a director to do." But to let the characters talk, he said, "I want forty percent of silence in you, in your script." That is a very I realize it's it's a very unusual way he worked with me because I think he pushed me very hard to think about things that I don't usually think because my story is very quiet internal. He said, "I want forty percent of quietness, silence," but but the characters still had to do things. The actors still had to. Act. So I learned a lot from him. And so when you had that story again, did you then start seeing it in a different way? Since you were asked to see it in a different way, a little bit. Yes. I mean, for one thing, the story to me was one block of time. The first time I met him, he said there. He said I marked the story. I think there were six days and seven nights or something. In the story,、oh. I thought that's a filmmaker. You know how a filmmaker look at things. Yes,、yeah. how you can break it down into scenes in these moments. I know, day and night. I know, yeah. So he actually said, "Oh, just start with six days and seven nights." 
<laughs> Thank you. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> all very new to me. <laughs> yes. Well, that's wonderful, though. Well, let, well, we're going to take a short break and then we'll be right back. You've got um, Living Writers here today, Yi Yun Lee um, on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. back. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Today, Yu Yun Lee is here with us. Um, thanks again for coming. No, it's, such a, it's such a nice... I'm, I'm having such a nice time talking to you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh well, me as well. Uh, that's, that's for sure. Um, we should probably... We'll give a shout out to Patrick O'Keefe, because he'll be listening oh. o- o- in Hamilton, New York. Oh, hello, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and and you, because you guys actually, I've I've heard about you from Patrick when you were visiting Colgate right. earlier yes. in the year. So have, were you on? Um, have you been on book tour with this coming out in paperback? The Vagrants. We should mention the novel again. Oh, the Vagrants. Yes. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I have been doing a little bit tour in the last few weeks. Yes, and I'm doing a lot. Of, I have to do a lot of international tour because the paper paperback just. I mean, uh, the hot cover is coming out in Europe. Oh, that'll be... Well, what do you... Well, what, what, let me ask you about that. How do you feel? Because when I was looking online, it seems like very well received, um, uh, your your first story collection, yeah. um, you know, with the reviews. And uh, are you looking forward to... I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I, or is it just that... I mean, maybe you... You probably have another project that you're in full swing and it, you kind of... It feels like you're being torn. Well, it's... 
it's it's very interesting. I mean, book tour is always an interesting thing for me because it's not my natural platform. You know, I would just well, you're very good at this. <laughs> oh, thank you. But I I guess my most natural, you know, I don't know, being is just to stay home and you know write. But it's good to go out to see people. I it's very interesting to see you know, especially other countries. Like I went to Spain for for the promotion and it was interesting to hear what they were interested i mean for instance they were they were i mean all the reporters asked about like what do you think of china as the next leader of the you know of the world and i thought you know <laughs> first of all i could not answer that question but that question tells so much about you know different different countries they have a different concern like I, I don't but think. But how can you be the smoke spokesmodel ah, or I know. ambassador? I would never. Right? No, no, that's not my. But yeah, so. <laughs> but, but that's what they're asking of you in some yeah, way. Yeah, sort of. It? You know, they're curious. So, or so as I'm, an intellectual, uh, they they ask a lot about intellectual. You know, or the leftist is thinking. You know, why why do why did we in why did we in Europe admire Chairman Mao so much? Well, in China, it didn't work out. <laughs> And you're like, well, now yeah. speaking as a European, I am <laughs> from, right. you know, no. way back when, no. before I was born. <laughs> so it's it's interesting to see. I mean, it's interesting to see the world, too. And uh, the book is really well received in, you know, in all the countries. So I'm very grateful for that, of course. Oh. Well, well, it's wonderful that you're that you found this this you had this moment in Iowa when, when you decided because if you're saying that's your natural being to to be at home in mm-hmm. a room and writing I wonder what would have happened if you hadn't found I wonder how you because it seems like you would have found it somehow that's so interesting I, you know I don't know because like my friend Sugi actually Sugi is oh, here yes. <laughs> hi Sugi if you're there Sugi will be on the program next week oh really exciting because I remember when we were in Iowa Sugi and I were in the same year and Sugi said well it's really a fluke you became a writer (laughs) and I said Sugi you're absolutely right she said oh if you landed in a town where you know there were all firefighters you would become a firefighter (laughs) and I just love it so I you know in a way I think I, I look at this way I think serendipity really plays an important role in life and so I I cannot imagine what if like I did not become a writer. What if I did what if I went to Buffalo, New York for my PhD, which was another choice at the time. Yes. Yeah, so what would have happened then? Hmm. Mm, I, I don't know. know. We don't we know. Don't know. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> um well this I I wanted to ask you about uh, and this is completely hilarious scene as I was just like we were just kind of joking about how you're asked to be this ambassador mm-hmm. um, to speak on behalf of all of China um, mm-hmm. uh, but but actually just in, in your own experience I was wondering because you were still when Tiananmen Square um, mm-hmm. in 1984 you were very young like 15 1989 or so? 89. 80, oh, what did I say you said 84 oh geez no but no that's I didn't because mean that. you, were, no, you were thinking about George Orwell <laughs> <laughs> Good save. <laughs> Thanks for helping me out there. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah. Truth be told, yeah. full disclosure, not a historian, but but yeah, I do remember it was eighty nine. <laughs> because of course I saw that image of the person standing right. in front of the tank, and I was so I got to thinking about it this morning. Like what? And because of your novel and what it deals with, mm-hmm. um, w- was that a moment that 
that you had a personal experience with or was it something that you were very young and and you mm-hmm. were protected from it or no i was 16 i was was i 16 i think 16 or 17 i, I was, was 16 oh, that was 16 i was 16 going on 17 i wasn't 17 yet so I have to, every time i see my age i have to calculate <laughs> well you terrible. never feel the age you are i know right? that's right no, i was 16 so i knew a lot i learned a lot and i saw a lot and remembered a lot. So, yeah, I would call it the moment that I became a grown-up. You know, I totally, I wouldn't say I lost my childhood, but I exited my childhood after that. So, became really just, I started to look at the world in a very, I would say, critical way or, you know, just... I, I, you know, I think I question. I always question a lot, but after that, I question more probably than when I was a child. Yeah. And what did that, like, what did that lead to you wanting to pursue science for a while? Because that was something more that you could prove in the questioning, or. Well, I became a scientist only because my parents wanted me to become a scientist. That's, that's what I was guessing right, from the bones right. of the biography. But. I did not have a choice there. But my my father did say, you know, science is more like an absolute truth than literature or human art, uh, humanities. And that's what he said. You should go into science. But but absolute truth. I mean, that's that's like that's a hard no, thing to define. By and stories, you have can right, get to the right. Truth. I mean. As a scientist, you're trying to look into things, right? I mean, that's exactly what a writer does. You look into things. You look beyond that surface. You look what's what's underneath the surface, what's going on, really. And the layerings of yes, it and the collisions yeah, of yes. the... Yes, yeah. exactly, yes. Um, and, and so was it something then that... So that was a moment for you... Um, because Beijing's so huge, I guess mm-hmm. in my my mind of it, I feel like there that you that you were there, right? And, and uh, I mean, my school, my high school, was very close to Tiananmen Square, and we would go like my friend and I. After school, we would go to either the square. Or we, we would go to different colleges to see the students protest, read the posters, you know. So we did. I mean, I I did learn a lot from the period, and my sister was in college. And she would go to these protests. She would come home with all these tales, you know? That's very exciting then, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was a very... It was an, a, and scary, I would think. You know, at the time, it was the moment. Even I knew that was like a historical moment for the country. But I didn't... Re- I mean, my, fa- my father, my parents, long before the bloodshed, they said they were going to shoot people now. Like, like half a month before that happened. They sort of were more pessimistic. They knew this was coming. But but for me, I think I was 16. I just thought, oh, you know, the country is going to change. It's my generational story. Yeah, that's the, that's the, you know, the optimistic. And, and so already you were thinking in my, it's mm. my generation's story. This is something. In a way, yes, yeah. yes. But it turned out to be a different story. Yes. yes. <laughs> Still unfolding. That's right. Still going on. Living in the U.S., um, it's it's is. Are you able then to see the China in a different way? Like, is it something like? I wonder if you were writing in China. Well, we, I guess we've already said right. writing in English right. allowed for this whole new way of mm-hmm. writing. But and also just ge- I, for me, the geographical distance. 
the 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 distance the physical distance is very important for me when i when i went back to china to visit i could not write a single sentence i think it has to do, do why i mean it was like the spoken language around me was chinese at the time but also just you went you know you associate something with a specific place and when i was in beijing i became different person you know you were almost the daughter yes again. i was a daughter and i was this i was this person who had grown up in the city so it's different than being in america well thank goodness you are a writer here oh thank you and thanks for being on the program today <laughs> thank, and this oh, has been great thank you so much ti i so much enjoy it <laughs> Come back anytime. Oh, I will. <laughs> you will get so tired of me. <laughs> <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> Thanks again to Alex Bellhodge for stepping in to engineer. Um, you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Thursday, April 30th, 2009. From KPFA in Berkeley, I'm Mitch Jezrich, sitting in for Out of Bogado. Progressives call for accountability for authors of U.S. torture policy. Two oppositional sides in Pakistan duel it out. But it's not on a battlefield. We'll take you to the football field, where they play to win. And we'll head to the border city of Tijuana, where residents are surprised more isn't being done to try to stop the now imminent flu pandemic. Stay tuned for that and more after this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for Free Speech Radio News. Today, the Obama administration announced U.S. automaker Chrysler will proceed with bankruptcy filings. This step comes, according to President Obama, because a small number of Chrysler's debtors refused to work with the company to help ensure its future. In particular, a group of investment firms and hedge funds decided to hold out for the prospect, prospect of an unjustified taxpayer-funded bailout. They were hoping that everybody else would make sacrifices and they would have to make 
None. Some demanded twice the return that other lenders were getting. I don't stand with them. Bankruptcy is the president's solution to this dilemma. And that's why I'm supporting Chrysler's plans to use our bankruptcy laws to clear away its remaining obligations so the company can get back on its feet and onto a path of success. Obama also confirmed Chrysler would form a partnership with the Italian auto firm Fiat, but Fiat would not 